This is Storybeat with Steve Cuden, a podcast for the creative mind. Storybeat explores how masters of creativity develop and produce brilliant works that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuden. Thanks for joining us on Storybeat. We're coming to you from the Steel City, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Storybeat episodes are available at storybeat.net and on all major podcast apps and platforms. If you like this episode, please take a moment to leave us a rating or review. And please, won't you subscribe to Storybeat wherever you listen to podcasts? My guest today, Jonathan Deans, is a highly renowned, heavily in-demand theatrical sound designer. His sound systems and designs can be heard on stages and in venues around the world. Known for his unique approach to immersive sound by giving the audience a one-off sonic experience for a particular theater or space, Jonathan works to create a memorable moment in time while supporting the visual and musical content capturing the dynamics and emotion of each event. His systems are designed specifically for a client's venue. Jonathan's work has been an integral part of more than 15 unique Cirque du Soleil productions, including Love, Ka, Mind Freak, Viva Elvis, O, Mystere, La Nuba, and Saltimbanco, among others. Jonathan has created sound designs for more than 20 Broadway shows, including such notable productions as Jagged Little Pill, for which he was Tony-nominated, Waitress, Finding Neverland, the Tony-nominated Pippin, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark, Lacajo Fall, for which he was Tony and Drama Desk nominated, Young Frankenstein, Lestat, Carrie, and Parade, both of which were nominated for a Drama Desk Award, Susical, Ragtime, and many more. Beyond Broadway, Jonathan's designs have elevated and enhanced dozens of musicals and plays the world over. His sound installations can be heard in hotels, theme parks, and stores globally. Among his nominations and awards for Broadway and elsewhere, he received the prestigious USITT Distinguished Sound Designer Award. For more about Jonathan, please visit his website at designingsound.com. Well, I've been looking forward to this chat for quite a while because Jonathan and I go back a bit, having met in Los Angeles in the late 1980s while working together on a play called Ourselves Alone. I designed the lighting and Jonathan designed the sound. So for all those reasons and many more, it's a truly great pleasure for me to have one of the world's greatest sound designers and my friend, Jonathan Deans, as my guest on Storybeat today. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. That was really nice. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure having you here. Believe me, I love talking to you. So let's go back to your roots, your beginnings. When did you first think about the amplification and modification of live sound? How far back does it go? When you were a kid? Um, I started off as a, um, a child actor. I mean, I, I started off before that as well, but as a, as a child actor uh, and went into the theater. And uh, one of the things I did, I was with the Royal Shakespeare Company as an actor and wow. young, ch- young child actor. Mm-hmm. I, and I met this individual who um, was Julian Beach, who um, was their sound person. And I found it fascinating 
on the work that he was doing and the sound effects and it became really interesting and then uh, I kept in touch with him and then as I got older I would go and visit uh, Stratford and then just just learn a little bit more this is you know some years uh, ahead and um, I just became very interested in that and while I was a struggling young adult actor um, or late teenage uh, actor I've sudden, I I had this ability because I taught myself how to edit tape at that time. So edit sound. So and you started in with a little bit of tech early on. Yeah. So yeah, it was interesting. I, when I was when I was little, I would kind of wire my house, my bedroom up. You know, this is way before that. I would just wire. I'd electrocute myself. You know, uh, all the time and just do things. And I found the whole thing interesting. And and we'd go to the uh, bomb sites and pull uh, garbage out of there, which was, you know, old TV sets and radios and things and try and get them working. And I'm just, I, I've always kind of was interested in that and interested in listening to music. So I, I think that was my, it became my passion. It was my growing passion. Um, and then when I got to the point, I actually saw myself do a TV show, uh, Paul Temple, uh, it was a TV show, and I I, I watched it uh, on the TV with my family, and I was horrified at what I looked like, what I sounded like, and I, <laughs> it was terrible. And I realized that I had to do something else. Um, um, well, I know you've terrified many people since. No, I'm kidding. You you don't you're not terrifying looking at all. <laughs> I, I, well, to me, it was just shocking. No, it was just shocking to to see myself and hear myself and to see how terrible I was as a, as a young actor, uh, in my, in my opinion, you know, uh, because it, you were, you were doing the old thing of looking at yourself or listening to yourself, both of which people usually find horrifying. Yeah. And, and I was, uh, I think I was like, uh, 16, 17, you know, so, um, right, right so in that, right in that very, very difficult age group. I had grown really tall, and but my voice hadn't broken correctly. It never broke. It kind of just drifted. And so there was this whole thing that I just, it was just, I think, at that age where we're, when we're all around that age, it, it's quite a, a difficult thing. And then to see that being recorded and being played on TV for everyone, it was, uh, it was a little too much for me. I had done other things and been, you know, in movies and things like that. Um, it wasn't me. I was playing other roles and other parts or other periods. This was me right there. And it was like, oh, gosh. So, so sound started to appeal to you then? Yeah, well, well what happened was I, I, with that, kind of lost all my confidence. And uh, I could edit tape. And I went to the local uh, repertory theater at the time, which was Richmond Theater in the UK and um, asked if they needed anyone to cut tape or to do anything like that. And so, uh, and it was called a technical ASM. So I took over, I, I got a position as technical ASM in the theater. And, and so you didn't go to school to learn how to be a sound designer. You just learned it by doing it. There was no school for sound design. There was no real, there was no sound design sure. at that time. I'm speaking in the theater at that time. It was- There know, really wasn't even a credit, was there? Uh, no, there was no credit. You were you were a technical ASM, but that was no credit. It was you know, I mean, it is a credit in the in the program of the stuff, but it's not a front page credit. There was none of that at all. Um, that was to come um, with you know the likes of hair 
etc and so that um it, i'm given the kind of age you know the kind of year well and, as as things became a little more amplified rock opera and people weren't performing so much live stuff live uh, yeah. unmiked stuff i should say yeah, that, that's right. It, it was the beginning when people were listening to radios, they were listening to record players, they were listening to TV. And so um, it was the time when people stopped listening to acoustical sound and were much more comfortable listening to amplified sound, not from, well, I guess it is from choice when you're watching TV and radio, uh, et cetera. But so when you go to the theater and suddenly you have to sit and listen, uh, it becomes a different skill for an audience that's, you know, and that just becomes worse. So, and worse. so when it's acoustic, you really have to lean in as an audience member to pick up all the sound. But when it's amplified, which is what you're used to in a movie theater or off of a TV or off of a record player, the people got used to that. So they needed that same sound quality. Yeah, That's right. Uh, I, it's, it's not the sound quality. It's it, because th that opens up a whole different thing there. Uh, but it, it, it's, it's just the, the comfort of not having to strain or that they can be thinking or doing something else uh, while that, that sound is going on. Even when they're sitting down in an auditorium, they can, it, it's just being given. I mean, I, I think now it's easy to say you have a remote control and you set the level that you like. Um, so somewhere in that, between that and acoustic is quite a different thing. And oh, so sure. It was that era when those things wanted, and as you rightly say, it was when the rock operas came with Hair and Jesus Christ Superstar and uh, Catch My Soul, um, which was another big one in England at the time. It started bringing in a different kind of way of, uh, for actors and directors to be able to perform and to, to think of the theater art itself uh, by not being tied down to having to stand on the front of the stage and belt. Who did you admire in those days as someone that you knew was really good at being someone who could deal with sound and sound design? Uh, the the person who, there there is really only one person for me that came into that, and that was Abe Jacob. Abe Jacob is uh, uh, my mentor. He's retired, just recently retired. Uh, he's my mentor, and he would... He was involved with the Mamas and the Papas and Jimi Hendrix, uh, the Beatles in various different stadiums. Um, he, I mean, there are several books on Abe Jacob. Yeah, he's famous. And, he's a famous sound designer. Yeah, and, and just a, 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 such a dear man. And it was just a pleasure to have him, to meet him and then to work with him. And I was a mixer. I was someone who would sit behind the console and mix mm -hmm. the shows every night. Live. Live, live. Yeah, always live, always live. I, that's, I, I kind of always kept the live situation. I've never done um, live audiences, uh, live performances is what I'm interested in. Yeah, you don't you don't mix am. you don't mix sound for TV or film. You it's it's no. all live stuff for you. No, I try I tried doing I tried doing uh, some commercials and a, a film once, and I found it uh, the process um, just too complete, too finished, too. I, I didn't I didn't like the process. I didn't like the process of what happened to the sound after I had finished and other people did their things to mm -hmm, it. Whereas the sound design, sound designer in live entertainment, uh, you you kind of have control of it as the audience are hearing it, being the mixer or the sound designer, 
uh, you represent it, someone's not going to go in there and change it all after you've left the building. Right. Nobody's going to edit what you've done. They're going to, it's, it is what it is. Once the audience gets up and leaves, it's over. Yeah, there's right. no, there's no going back. And every performance is, has its own little unique thing to it. Well, and yes. And that's the brilliant thing about live theater. And that's what we're missing so much now uh, these days during the COVID uh, era is that we don't have that live spontaneous performances that are done with uh, actors, musicians, and the audience themselves of just every every second is different from the performance before. And that's sure. why we go to the theater. It is why we go to the theater. It's, it's there, it, you're, every performance disappears into the void, forever gone. Every single performance is unique. The, the actors are a little different. The audience is different. And that's what makes theater so, I mean, extraordinarily wonderful if you're into that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So how long was it before you stepped up? About what age were you when you stepped up and actually started to design sound for live shows where you, you took that role on? I think I was like, in, uh, I probably just turned 30. I was in my 30s. Um, I mixed for a long, long time for uh, Abe, did all of Abe shows when they came to England. And then I was working with a company called Autograph Sound and I would mix all the opening nights and all, all those things. And it was, it was fabulous. The first show that I designed was a show called um, Marilyn, based on Marilyn Monroe. Right. Uh, uh, very much. And uh, it was done at the um, uh, Delphi Theater. And I th so it was sometime in the... I don't know, 80s. I'm really bad at remembering dates. Well, that's stuff, all right. So. It's a, it gives us an approximation. You were around 30-ish, so you worked at it for a while before you felt like you could go up and take that credit. I, uh, yes. Um, I, I, I do find that... Uh, I, I, I don't think that was necessarily a choice. It was just of me waiting until I could feel that I was confident enough to do that. I think it was just when the opportunity came along. I mean, there were many, uh, I, besides theater, I was doing uh, many uh, kind of concerts and ballrooms and things like this. As a autograph is a rental company of equipment. And so they would rent and they would say, hey, can you guys mix it as well? And it could be like, you know, an evening of this and an evening of that or a gala of this or a live performance for TV of that. And so I was always part of that the group setting that that up with the equipment and nine times out of 10 would be the person to mix it as well. Right. So when you did Marilyn, did you at that moment think to yourself, I'm really good at this. This is what I want to do. No, 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 no. I, uh, luckily enough, the, the, the writers uh, were thrilled or so they would tell me each time they would see me, <laughs> they were thrilled with uh, what I had done, but in the same way, because it's live and everything else, you, it's never finished. It's never finished. I think it's, you know, a bit like a chef, a cook, a chef, you know, um, where you have all the ingredients and you make the same thing over and over again and then they eat it and it's gone. And there's, and it's just someone who rates it or says, yes, that was very nice. Thank you very much. But you have, but you know that you could change this and do this and make this and is it better or worse? Or so it's, you can never step back and and just go oh yeah i did a good job so how long did you work at it at with the credit of sound designer before you felt like you know what i 
I'm pretty decent at this. Was it a, a while? Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, it was a while. I don't think that happened until probably about just a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> just a few years ago. That, um, that the the best answer I've ever heard on that one on that particular question is what makes you think I think I'm good now. <laughs> you know, because you're always the, the the point is is as an artist, you're always learning and growing. You're always finding new things. And, and you always have uh, different opinions and different points of view besides uh, on yourself by many other people. And, sure. so, and if you open yourself up, you're just a big, you know, dartboard uh, with everyone throwing darts. So you have to be careful of that and have some confidence. I mean, definitely while I'm working, you, you need the confidence and to make the choices, et cetera. But still, it, because we in the sound world rely on the performers and the musicians to also be involved to make that kind of triangle in order to present to an audience or to uh, the critics, which is the audience. It's an ongoing thing. So looking back on things, I, when you're doing a, a piece, a little scene in the theater and rehearsals, you can go, oh, that's pretty cool. I love that. And, but when you put it all together, it might not be. and it would have tweaked slightly and changed slightly because of it being live. And so you always struggle to try and get it to something that was in your mind of where you thought that was good, even though that the whole thing has shifted and moved. It's a bit like a river stream, you know, it's going down and everything else. And how do you control that? How interesting that much like a writer and a director, because I'm thinking about the other designers aren't really impacted in the same way a sound designer is much like a writer or a director, you are relying on someone other than yourself or your whatever product you're trying to put out to actually be a piece of the finished good. So you, in other words, you've got to rely on the performers to speak in a certain way or sing in a certain way and make sure that they're doing what makes your work sounds wonderful as well. As opposed to the lighting designer, the light's going to come up and it's going to go away one way or another. And, and much like the sets and costumes, they are what they are. They are sort of fixed. But the performance yeah. changes everything. Yeah, unless you've got the dog bark. You know, the, if you've the got dog the dog bark, bark you've got the dog bark. It's, it's, it's the dog <laughs> bark that's, on, that's you know, a recorded dog bark. That, well, that's sure, if you, sure. If, if you, sound effects, obviously, are, yeah. are fixed. Yeah, yeah. No, no question about that. All right, aside from the obvious, that it's good for a designer to be able to hear music and effects and hear amplification of voice and what performers are saying and singing. Can you define for the listeners why sound is so vital for a production to succeed? What is it about sound that changes the production in a positive way? In short, why is sound important and necessary? The very basic thing is like we had discussed at the beginning of, of this, which was uh, how the audience uh, listen these days and how, they, and how um, sound in the residential areas, um, how it evolves and changes and what people uh, are listening to and what they stick in their ears and uh, how they listen to music. When you go to the theater or to a live spectacle or something like that, if there was no sound, if there was no amplification of sound, you wouldn't be able to hear it. It would be like, again, I'll, I'll pick the chef. The, the, uh, it's like going to a, a supermarket and buying all the groceries and then dumping them on the table. That's what you would have. Mm -hmm. you, you you would, have the, the performances would become really small, wouldn't they? 
they were they would become small. I did a show called On Your Toes in in England. Mm-hmm. It was done at the Palace Theatre, and I've forgotten the year, but Tim Flavin was uh, the actor. Anyway, On Your Toes, if you want to look it up. The idea was that it had been done. It was directed by George Abbott, and wow. George Abbott uh, was redirecting it again. And he was in his 90s. It was the same choreographer. It was the same scenery. Everything was the same. Hmm. And they said, we didn't have sound in those days. We're not going to do sound. But the producer said, well, I think what we should do is have a sound consultant just in case. <laughs> and so what they did was at the first week of rehearsal, after the cast learned the music, the cast learns the music for shows or majority of the music in the first week of rehearsal, they brought the cast in and they hired an orchestra, put them in the pit and had the cast sing on stage uh, just walking around doing their thing, just to test it. And myself as the consultant, uh, hired as the consultant, and the producers and director all walked around the theater and go, yeah, why not? And uh, so George Abbott was very excited by that. When the performance started, it previews, first preview. With an audience. With an audience. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting because the, the curtain, we, we started with an overture and the audience were just carrying on talking. They just continued talking and there's the overture and then the curtain went up. And so they stopped talking when the curtain went up and they sat down and the actors started talking and you saw the entire, I was in the orchestra level in the stalls and the entire audience, you see them all lean forward. I'm saying this because <laughs> you reminded me by you saying, you know, that you have to, they're all leaning forward and struggling. And then after five, 10 minutes, you see individuals stand up and leave. And then there's a fire station across the road from that theater, um, or there was at the time, I think it's still there. There's a fire engine that went by, started with the siren, and you see the entire audience look at a brick wall to, to, to their left. Uh, and they were so distracted. And it was like, it was terrible. And then the orchestra started, and it was about a third of the audience had left asking for their money back. Oh. So oh. slowly, just to finish that story up, because this, I think that answers the question of yes. what the town do. Uh, and this is for a very classic, very original, very uh, beautiful, beautiful show, especially the third act, which is uh, Slaughter on 10th Avenue, by the way. They, they, we had to start amplifying the show. We had to start bringing it in. And then there was all these other problems of the actors. They couldn't hear to do the tap sounds. And so how do we hear the orchestra? And it's like, well, what did they do then? And then it was all these conversations. Of course, uh, Mr. Abbott had no clue of how that was done or what it was, what they used because they didn't actually use anything. It was, you know, there was other conversations that were had and it was just the way people listened back then to, you know, in the fifties, I think it was when it was first done to this time, which was probably in the mid eighties, you know, somewhere around there. One of the, one of the tricks I learned early on as a teacher is if I wanted my students to really listen to what I was saying, cause I'm not amplified in a classroom. Um, it, it, one of the tricks is I would talk a lot softer and then they would be forced to lean in to really listen to me. So if, if they cared that much, that is. It, well, you know, that's a really big problem. <laughs> yeah, if they were interested, yeah, if, you know, otherwise yeah. they just go to, they lean out and go to well, sleep. Well, that, I, that's the other thing is that you, you find many of them with their eyes closed. That's a whole other story. But, <laughs> but I would find that if I were really talking 
with volume that they were kind of like not really paying close attention. But if I went real quiet, they suddenly had to pay attention because they, right. couldn't, they couldn't exactly hear what I was saying without active listening. Because that's yep. the difference, isn't there? We all hear if we have, if we have um, the ability to hear, we're not deaf and we have the ability to hear, which is a huge number of people. Um, that's different from the, the act of listening, which is an, an activity. You have to actively listen. Yeah. And, and you, you do not wear glasses on your ear. So, <laughs> so whether you have 20-20 hearing or, or however you relate that, it's you can hear or you can't. There's nothing right. in between. So there's all those areas like that, which is probably just another um, four-hour conversation. So. All right. So going into about how you think of yourself, do you consider yourself to be an artist or a craftsman or a technician or all the above combined? A, I consider myself as not a technician, and I'll, I'll pick on that one because everyone easily says sound is a technical art form. And I would say, well, much as about, much as lighting is a technical, art much form. as lighting is, but even a musician, you know, if, if uh, let's pick a cellist, being a great cellist is it's so technical. Any instrument, actually, the technicalities of the instrument and the uh, and what you have to do to create a sound. And then how you express yourself and how you then uh, create the dynamics and emotion in that. You have to have understood the technicalities of that instrument to be able to perform that. And I would equate that to the same way as, as sound very easily. I, I um, kind of feel strongly about that. When I work with the Sector Soleil uh, group, we're seen as creators. We're all creative. You're, an, art creative. you're an artist. We're the creative team. <laughs> I, uh, what would you call an interior designer or a chef? Well, I, I think mean, I, I always look, I think you have to have a fair chunk of some of all of it. So the question then is, could you do what you do as a sound designer and not have any understanding of the technical equipment that you're using? Could no. you do that? No, no you, no, you have to, you have to understand the equipment. Those are your tools. Your tools are the microphones and the speakers and the mixing right. board. Now those are your tools. And so you have to understand that equipment in order to use it, but then you use it in a creative way, correct? Yes. Yes. And I, th I think initially uh, going back, you know, a couple of decades, it was very easier, much simpler to understand how sound traveled sure. through the equipment. Uh, and as soon as we've gone into the digital age, it's much more confusing and the, the signal path. And so it becomes more uh, complicated. And so therefore you might have, you need a team to make things work, to understand it because it's become much more complicated. But what that does at the same time is give the production some fluidity. It gives the system that you build uh, chances of uh, being able to dissect it and place it in different areas, et cetera, as opposed to one area. It gives uh, some ability to scale your, your system from one thing to another, to another, to another. Whereas previously, back in the analog days, uh, there was not much scaling going on. The digital world, computers in the digital world, digital world have made your job in some ways much better for the audience and in some ways probably easier and in any number of ways even more challenging is that correct uh yes yes it's it's much more complicated for us 
in, in a general sense for us, the sound team and for you, the expertise. And yes, you do have to know a lot more about how the systems work, etc. Uh, it's funny, what the question you asked, do I need to know the equipment to be a sound designer? And I very strongly say absolutely yes, yes, yes. But I know there are a number of uh, sound designers who don't know how the equipment works and they have other people do that. But then I feel that you lose control. You don't have the guidance that you want to take the, uh, your, your, your performance down a road and you have an objective. It's like trying to drive from uh, the West Coast to the East Coast. You need a map, you need to be able to get there. A sure. map or GPS or whatever you, you have, you know, looking at analog versus digital. And so you need to know where you're going. You need to know, oh, I need to stop here and do this. I need to go here and, and everything else and time and sleep and everything else. So you have to have it all worked out. In the same way, you need to do that. You can't just go, oh, I've got to, I've got to get to opening night, my destination. And uh, that's it. It's like, and hopefully it's, it, it will work. All right, so how much of a show's sound, the ultimate end product, how much of it is based on your gut feelings as you're listening to the show? Is it all about how something sounds to you? And then, of course, whatever feedback you get from the director and producers and so on. But is it based on your gut feelings or is it based on some sort of technical information? Uh, gut feeling. It's absolutely uh, it's the gut feeling of how it sounds. It, it's first of all uh, understanding the music, the composer, the arranger. Uh, it's understanding the the theater. It's understanding the space. It's understanding the performers. It's understanding the musicians, and of course, understanding the director. So every single space requires its own unique perspective. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You, you have to design a sound system for that particular theater. A lot of people might think that when you go into a theater, you, you, there's a sound system there. No, there's nothing. There's nothing there. You know, in the regional theaters, they, there may be. But even for a Torin uh, show, a Toro comes in and brings in their own equipment. Mm -hmm. In New York or West End, you bring in, there is nothing in there. You bring in every single piece of wire to everything that is needed to it's create. what's called in the business a four wall that's correct yeah and there's just four walls and you know not much else seats and that's about it power that's right and you bring everything else and so you, you you're very involved in and i will have definite ideas of how i want it to sound how i feel and when even when i'm looking at drawings of a theater so let's say i, have, I, I know i'm going to do a show and i'll, I'll look at the uh, drawings of the theater and as I'm looking at those drawings of the theater, I am, if there is music available, music that's written for the show, I would have heard that music. And I will imagine myself sitting in every seat and enjoying that music. Do you, actually, do you actually, as it's playing in rehearsals, do you go to the various parts of the theater and listen to it? No, from no, I'm, saying, uh, I'm saying at home. Oh, at before, home. you're imagining it before you ever get there. That's right. And I'm hearing it being being played in that way and then i i am also dissecting it and place and start from my process of pulling the sound apart and placing elements in different places and focusing the voice to where the voice is which is in the proscenium arch for now because i don't know the staging but the music i'll start 
placing and imagining how it feels and understanding the height of the theater, the depth of the theater, the width of the theater, how the seating is, whether it's continental seating, whether there's one aisle, two aisles, all these things play a big part of how I am hearing in my mind, in my you know, studio office or on a plane. That's uh, amazing. It's, it reminds me a little bit of Nikola Tesla, the great inventor, who could invent a machinery, a piece of machinery in his head, and he would turn it on and let it play in his head for weeks and find out where things would break down. He had, he had no actual anything. It was all in his mind. So That's amazing. That is to totally amazing. I'm not it, sure. Uh, I'm not sure that it's on well, that same, a little bit, same level, but, but you know, I'm a, I'm a sound designer, but, but uh, uh, yeah. All right. So, so well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I know that you truly believe in creating these unique sonic experiences, which is what you're doing. You couldn't have gotten to what you're talking about, where you're able to imagine it in your mind, having not done a lot of productions. That, that was not in the beginning. You didn't have that immediately, did you? No, no, I didn't have that in the beginning. But before, um, w one thing I did before I started mixing, actually, after that, uh, being at the Richmond Theater, doing sound effects, etc., I actually went into his, uh, the next job I got was, because uh, the, the, they stopped touring and they got rid of their, um, their, their employees at the theater. And uh, sorry, I stopped doing rap and they became touring theater. So we all lost our jobs. And so I, I went into a recording studio and I started working in a recording studio for a diff uh, two, two different recording studios for a couple of years. And so that was interesting of learning about uh, microphones and how to mic and all the different engineers that I'd work with. And then also how the individuals, the band uh, and the producers would listen to the music in their various different ways. Mm. It's always quite different. Everyone was quite different, but I was just was able to sit as an assistant engineer to, to listen to how those things, how, how people uh, received the, the sound or, and how they made the sound and how the sound was captured. What I was able, then after that, I actually went, got a job at the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden. And the most amazing thing there is, uh, I don't know what they've done to the acoustics now, and hopefully, uh, probably nothing at all because they don't need to. You go into the gallery and you listen to the orchestra in the gallery, and it is unbelievable. It is so, it comes at you from every angle. Hmm. This, as the sound reflects and the, the reverberation is just so unique in every different seat, it's so spectacular. The sound console, because yes, there was a sound console, which would be in one of the boxes next to the proscenium above the orchestra pit. When I'd sit in the sound box, when I was actually do, had a cue to do, because a lot of operas, there were no cues. You're sure. just there right. uh, looking after all these other things, offstage bands and stuff. When I would be in the, in the box, you could put your head over and I would be looking down on the orchestra pit which could be 60, 80 piece orchestra. Right. And hearing that sound wafting up in your face, that is, and it's like so silly to think that we can reproduce that out of speakers. It's so ridiculous. Even now, it's just, it's just so beautiful. Uh, and anyone, if you ever, you know, get the chance or make the chance to go and listen to a live orchestra in a room, it's just so theater space, you know, opera house, whatever. 
go console or go go it's just so fantastic it's, so it's it, as, it, I'm, as i'm saying this i'm i'm giving myself chills by the way <laughs> i bet you are and so to try and reproduce that you, you can't but um and i understand this from having tried in many different ways uh but it's not really because i knew it was kind of a you know ridiculous thing to try but so what i can do is create my own version of that mm -hmm. and immerse an audience and give them something and myself something that is unique for that production that belongs to that production it's what, not what? trying to do something that doesn't work on that you can't do sure. a rock and roll show and then imagine listening to you know La Boheme, you know, it's, uh, well, you probably could, uh, you know, but, you know, most of the time it's, it's you know, apples for apples, you, you're dealing with that. So as long as you're not twisting something, that, you know, because you can, that's not the point. Well, one, a recent guest on Storybeat is Bear McCreary, who's one of the great composers for TV and film that we have working in Hollywood today. And he tells of the experience of when, that he conducts most of the work that he writes. He said to me that when you're a conductor, all of that sound is literally focused on you. You're the focal point for all of that live sound. And he said, so he can no longer really enjoy going to a performance in a concert hall, even a live performance, because it's not the same as standing there and having all that sound focused on you. Even in a concert hall. That's even amazing. in even in a That's, concert hall, it's it's diminished for him because he's had this experience of having yeah. all this sound focused on him. Yeah, it's it, that's taking it one step even further, isn't it? It's because I'm I'm talking about being in the concert hall, and that's even not doesn't meet his standard of what he <laughs> needs to feel in that same way. That's fantastic. That's yeah. fantastic. So, that's, all right, would you say that there is a Jonathan Dean style that someone could, if someone knew what they were listening for, they could go to a show and say, ah, I bet Jonathan Dean's designed this? Um, I think for a certain kind of type of show, uh, yes. Uh, and I'll say the Cirque du Soleil. The easy, easy ones are Cirque du Soleil. So, so what's, what's the big difference between Cirque du Soleil and Broadway? How, what are the approaches? How are they different? And what are the feelings for an audience? How is it different? I'm sure it's huge. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I just tried, tried to put it into context, into words. Or, or, first of all, there is no script on Cirque du Soleil. There is not a storyline that you have to follow. So that's what I mean by the script. There is no book. There are stories. Uh, that uh, when you watch a Cirque du Soleil show, that even you might not be aware that there is a story, but there there is a story in the background. So, but there is not someone looking at a script and following dialogue in order to do the next thing or for the next song or something. And in fact, the singers don't even sing in any uh, language. They have the Cirquenese or whatever one wants to call it. Cirquenese. Yeah, <laughs> I just made that up, I think. But, but it's like, it's like, <laughs> it's the Cirquette. How about that? Oh, Cirquette. Um, I like Cirquenese better. Okay. <laughs> so um, it has its own style and its own, language even and so the uh, what we're what i'm able to do there is there are live musicians on uh, they're not live musicians on love because it's the real beatles music and using their mu original music every single thing you hear on the beatles like love is 100 percent beatles it's all rec it's recorded music it's yeah, okay. it's playback it's playback okay. it's playback from their original recordings and which was a whole fascinating project 
on its own. And, and the same with the Michael Jackson show called One. Um, that's all of Michael Jackson's recordings. And so in other, my point was there's nothing added extra to that. There's no extra musicians playing on top of that or anything like that. Um, actually, Michael Jackson is a guitarist, but it's only just a couple of licks, licks and it's just a visual, more of a visual thing. The um, circus shows have uh, live musicians. So we have the live musicians, but they also play to um, uh, recorded music as well. Um, it's not fixed. The music is not fixed. It's broken down. They use a, a playback system called Ableton for those who are interested. Um, and it's broken down and so that they can change the, the bars, the count, the, the looping, uh, et cetera, of the uh, music. But the, all this music has been uh, written. And so every time you see a sex show, never sound the same, well, won't, sound the same musically, it won't be in the same format because it depends on the performers because if people are flying through the air and doing death-defying things that are not ever going to be on the same timing. So it can't be fixed as in playback. Um, so taking that information uh, and understanding how that works and then applying it to uh, a, a sound system where I might have, well, I can go to extreme and say, uh, Love has uh, like nearly 7,000 speakers in that theater. Wow. So um, it, it... <laughs> That's gigantic. Yeah, yeah, but it's not to make it, oh, so therefore it's loud. That's really boring. No, no, it's uh, not it's, loud. It's, it, it, it's precise. It, it, yes, um, it, it's, it's fun. It's what it is. It's you're sitting there. It's there are three speakers in every seat. That's why there's so many. Wow. You know, nearly 2,000 seat auditorium. And then you've still got overhead speakers, side speakers, front speakers, rear speakers, uh, and lots of sub, subwoofers, subs. Um, and so being able to manipulate and play those sounds, and especially sounds that people know, it's funny because I. Um, there's a show called Car that is, uh, only has two speakers in every seat on that one. Uh, and all the Cirque shows don't have that. It's just a couple of them that have that. The audience are not aware of uh, the music in the same way. Uh, they're not aware of what I'm doing to the sound because they don't know the music. As soon as we did Love and everyone knows the music, it was like, whoa, look what you're doing to the music and everything else. And uh, I remember when the uh, you know, well-known people would turn up um, and, uh, well, besides, you know, Paul during, uh, Sir Paul during the rehearsals, etc. but when we started doing previews and it would bring in all of friends and family and, and, and uh, kind of celebrities, um, they would kind of all hunt me out and just to say amazing job. And it was really cool because they knew the music and they could identify to what I had done to those changes to make it a live show and something that was uniquely mixed in, in that space. Um, they, they had been hearing this music for all these, what, 40 yeah. years or longer, and suddenly they were hearing it differently for the first time. That's right. And, and Giles Martin, because um, we worked with George, Sir George Martin as well, his dad, but Giles Martin, who was, uh, was uh, there the whole time as well, obviously, uh, well, not, maybe not obviously, but he, uh, uh, he was there the whole time. He, um, he would take the tracks and put them together and, and just know what you could put together and what you couldn't put together. But then when we sat down together in the, the theater, 
it was then how one dissects it. And I'll give Giles amazing credit that he spent a lot of time going to all the other uh, circ shows that were running to understand how we could dissect and place sounds and everything else so he could understand that and, and think about that when he was getting those original tracks and how to layer that so that then I could do what I did and he could understand what that was and so that we had so much fun mixing, which was always in the middle of the night, uh, most nights, and it was just a, a, a brilliant experience and sometimes very tearful as we heard uh, solo tracks of, of um, the, the different performer, you know, the different um, musicians, the Beatles, different, you know, members of the Beatles. So. Yes, there were, there, were four, there were four of them, I believe. Yes, there were four. <laughs> I, I, it was just, but, but you know, sometimes it felt like there were 44 because just the, the, the way the style, the, the, the way the voices and the musicianship changed over time and then how they would, just, well, all the Beatles stuff. Just listen to the Beatles stuff, you know. Of, of course. Okay, so now what's the difference between that and a Broadway show? Uh, a, broad, a Broadway show, well, that's, a Broadway show can be much more traditional. It depends, again, it depends on the style. Broadway it's a proscenium. Show is, it's a proscenium arch, which you don't have in Cirque, right? Uh, sometimes we have proscenium arches on Cirque, but a lot of times not. One wants to kind of break that down, etc. But definitely, you know, a show like O has a proscenium arch. Uh, it's kind of based on an Italian theater. So I would say that, that you know, that's um, uh, pretty close to that. But the, on Broadway, um, the, it depends because you're not looking at a style for a company. You're looking for a style that belongs to the show. And that might, show might be, you know, Oklahoma or Sound of Music or something like that, a traditional show. And so you have to work with the, the way that is put in traditionally, unless of course they want to change that. And then when you do shows like, um, I'm thinking, I have to think of Jagged Little Pill, the one I just did recently, because it's Alanis Morissette music. Tom Kitt did the orchestrations uh, arrangement for, for the musicians on stage, for the, for, the, for the music. And he said to me, I think it was almost on the first, day and almost the first hour he said you should do what you do uh in sonically and give me an experience that you think that the audience should have um with this in in the way that you do it and it was like oh i've just been let off the leash <laughs> i've just yes. been i've just been unclipped really uh, i didn't say really <laughs> um i i said oh, great perfect okay and then I could approach the design in that way where I was being more immersive, but being uh, more refined. And so it changed how I would pick the people who were going to be involved in it. Mm -hmm. It changed the sound system of how I was going to approach it. It changed the relationship that I had with Tom Kitt. It changed, not, it was the first time I'd worked with him. So it, you know, change the potentially what I thought it was going to go. And it just changed the mindset. And why it changed the individuals on the sound is because then I needed someone. I needed a different kind of toolbox. I needed a different way to express what needed to be expressed. And I needed to, it's funny because it didn't change the schedule. It didn't change 
the, the it didn't really change the cost of things it just changed the style and so because i was able to in the the room itself in the theater itself the cast who sit in the auditorium during rehearsals uh, the director, choreographer, could see what I was doing. There was no conversation about it, but could see what I was doing. I was able to have that little bit more breathing room, that little bit more elbow space, that little bit more patience for me to get to something because, because it was of value and it was worth it. And the collaboration on that between director, arranger, orchestrator, supervisor Tom, uh, and myself, was very, very tight. It was a great experience. Um, so, so, so they knew they were getting something special and it was worth the extra effort to let you do that, where normally a sound person would come in, amplify the sound and move along. Yeah, but I can't do that anyway. Uh, but yes, but that's not me. <laughs> you see, right. I, I have no interest in doing utility sound. I, am, I have interest in doing sound that is creative and sound that will exp express the language of uh, the performer on stage. So that's the other thing is I will never forget that we are there to look at someone on stage in the proscenium arch or, or however it is. We are focused on that person and that first person is telling their story in this case, a scripted, a, a, a language that has to be understood to a point because there's points when the music actually is more powerful than uh, a repetition of the same uh, lyric. Or, or same um, script. That's a big thing there, by the way. Uh, it, yes, it just becomes a, a, a different approach. To, so to so as a sound designer, you become a storyteller. Oh, uh, uh, absolutely. My, I have, <laughs> uh, if you speak to anyone who mixes shows for me, and even when I was mixing, well, I, I think I did this when I was mixing because when you're learning a show, mixing, first of all, you can hardly look at the stage. You're looking at a script. If, you, if there's a script, you're looking at the script. You don't know what's going on on stage. So I'd have my own stories of what was going on. Sometimes I'd look up and go, oh, that's what they're doing because I have no clue. So, well, I have a kind of clue, but, but I would have my own <laughs> stories going on. And those stories are things that, have that I've experienced in my life and I've taken those situations and those moods and uh, you know an easy one might be you know like Christmas time and you know Santa's dropping presents down the chimney and it's all happy and joyful and but in with that and it's snowing and it's winter and it's dark and gloomy but so joyous and so you, you take that and put that into a, a musical sequence or that you're hearing and it it just fits for example example it could be something that would fit with uh, that mood that style and then you look up on stage and it's nothing like that at all there is no santa <laughs> there is no uh, chimneys or story or, there's nothing like that at all but the emotion and the and the feeling is that so a lot of times i will go to my mixers the people who are mixing the show and will say um imagine that and we'll give them a story saying do you, do you and, and find out because i've you know working with them or even on if they're new on that show we'll understand uh, what movies or say hey did you see this movie or did you do this you know this section here and if they don't I say oh go and watch this section here that's the sound that you're going to do that's the visual that belongs to this sound that you're going to do so that any time that a month a year later or something they're still working on that visual even though things might have changed in the production as far as the cast change or this or that they're still aiming for that same kind of so so you're you're acting as a director for the mixer 
You're directing yes. the mixer. Yeah, that's 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 a lot of what I do. Interesting. That's very interesting. It, it means that you have control over how they feel about it. Yes, I should, yes. I shouldn't say control over it, but you're you yeah. are directing them toward what they I'm directing feel them. About. And, and, and even and yes, you're right. It's not control um, because well, that they're, would be they're their own person. You know, that would be terrible. Well, it's not that. It's just it would be terribly stifling and very. Uh, undynamic if you're forcing something onto someone, but you find out what makes them tick and how they feel. And they might swap out your idea of your story, knowing what you've said into their own story. And so as long as that emotion and that feel is coming over with that mix, and this is, yes, nobody else knows this, this is going on. This is between myself and the mixer. Sure, of course, um, no, no, nor should they know. Uh, yeah, because, it's funny because then as soon as you've accomplished something, you can then go to the, 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 the uh, composer or ranger or the director and say, how's that? And they go, no, I don't, I'm not feeling this. This might be, why is this? And you say, well, because, and then I'm not going to explain my story, but I'm going to understand my throughput of my storytelling of the show. And this is, and they go, oh, I see, oh, I see. Well, I was, and then the director will say, you know, or, or, the, or the composer will say, well, I was, I was thinking of this and everything else. It, actually, if it's the composer, I'll go straight to the composer because the compo it's all inside their head anyway. Sure. The whole thing is inside their head. So all you're trying to do is take it further. You're taking, trying to get the head to explode from what was inside the head, explode and just turn in, you know, give them some LSD version of, <laughs> of their what they wanted in a good way some beautiful just you know like i said uh, listening to the royal opera house just being in the gallery a version of that kind of how they hear the music allowing it to get out of the box or their brain or their their head and escape and i will always check in with that always make sure that that's on the, that path and we'll have that discussion and they'll say no 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 you know this section here this is out of whack with this and you should try and uh, do this until so I'll go back and, and then understand what they're saying. And then from change, if I have to change something in order to fit their work, um, which where it comes from, then I can understand, oh, I see, okay. It, th that doesn't happen that much, by the way. But right. if there is a certain section of something that happens like that, then I will, I will change it. It's funny, a, a, a Vida, when I, uh, when I mixed a Vida, and that was Abe Jacob's show. Uh, this, this, the only is back, this is going back to the original. Uh, the original, Amer Prince of Wales, the Prince of Wales, yes, yeah, yeah. All uh, the way, you know, all the way back. In I, was two, I, I think I was two years old at the time when I was mixing that show. I, I think I, I think I was one. Yes. Oh. <laughs> so, so, oh, I, you might have been three. Okay. Three. Okay, so, I might have been three. You're right. So, yeah, Andrew Lloyd Webber gave me one note the whole time, the whole wow. production period, the whole previews gave me one note. Yeah, and it was. Um, it wasn't. You're fired. No, it wasn't. It was fired. It was about the uh, read. It's funny because I remember it was the read section in um, Buenos Aires. Um, and, uh, that, that was my note. That's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. All right. So in production, um, you, you know, what would you say are your biggest pet peeves? What are the biggest typical challenges that you come across that you go, I wish I didn't have to do this every time. Or is there nothing like that? Uh, schedule. Schedule. You never have enough time, do you? Uh, no, it's not that. 
It's not that it's not enough time. It, it can work with can work with the idea of what's on the, the, the schedule. It's just the order that the schedule comes in. And this is not the schedule in tech. It's the pre-tech. It's the from the load-in. Well, it's not even the load-in. It's it's from the time once the cars come on stage, how they get on stage, and the musicians. And it's that period of of time where it's the oh every time i have to do it maybe it's the same for every everyone uh, I'm, I'm sure it is uh, but it's over and over and over again uh, I, I think part of it is because it depends how big the orchestra is is it in the pit is it on stage is it a band are they moving around are the actors part of the band all these different things are the musicians on platforms that are gonna take them 15 minutes to get down from a platform? I mean, all these various things one has to take into account. And I wish I didn't have to do that over and over again because it's one of the first things that you're talking about in meeting with new people and stuff. And it, it really matters how that works. And so I am very strong about how this has to happen. And, and can explain it, and can explain it why and everything else, but it doesn't necessarily go down well with everyone. So because yeah. you're st suddenly dealing with a lot of people in many different departments that you really aren't over. That's right. That's right. We're, we're yeah. We're all we're all. I I see everything. Everyone is a collaborator. You know, is a collaborator, and there needs to be a collaboration. And it's very hard to do that and set that up because you can feel like you're not a collaborator you're saying this is what i need to make this work and everything else and uh and it's not necessarily the people in the room who will get to understand what you're trying to say it's when it goes out to everybody else and they go why are we changing this oh because of sound and it's like mm, yeah, okay <laughs> you know <laughs> well, so, okay. So, so that's an easy all, one. All, all of the technical rehearsal part of shows are fraught with all kinds of pressures and stresses. There's all of a sudden, there's a conglomeration of people that are all trying to focus on finishing off something and getting it before an audience. So there are pressures and stresses that come with every tech rehearsal. How do you handle pressure? What is, do you have a particular method or technique or do you do you exercise? I mean, what do you, what do you do to handle stress? Um, drink tea. Drink tea. <laughs> First of all, um, it, it is, it is teamwork. One has to have teamwork and one has to be, um, a part of the team and you have to have a group of people that you're, you're working with in the sound department that understand that we are all in this together and this is what we want to do. And, I uh, am always open to listen to everybody's opinion and what they have to say, et cetera. And I, I'm looking to have as much fun as possible to keep it light. I want to uh, make sure that um, anyone can come up to me and say anything to me about something, um, whatever it is. And once that environment is set there and uh, you're allowed to Therefore, be very comfortable. Everyone in my team and everyone in, or in our team, I should say, because it's not my team, but everyone feels comfortable and they know why they're there. 
if you have that, then you have people who will take care of things and will overlap the, their duties and their jobs, including myself, of how one does anything else. And if there is a little hole in between this person and this person, it's covered between the two of them or someone else covers it. And so you work as a very solid, uh, well-knitted sweater. Um, and so by doing that, it reduces the stress and pressure down 1,000%. Then I am going to make sure that I have the best of my ability to have conversations and to enjoy the everybody else, uh, all the other designers and definitely the director and all, all, all composer, everyone. So I, I will... Once I go, I don't like leaving the theater at lunchtime. I uh, don't much like leaving at dinner time. I like to stay in the theater the whole time. Uh, I don't think that that's a good thing. I try and do, I, I usually get dragged out by the team at di for dinner, but I don't like leaving because if, if you leave the room, something might happen that you might need to see or know about. And lots of times it might be cast getting notes you know, staggering lunch uh, dinner breaks or the actors call compared to the the um, the, the stage crew call, uh, all those different things that come in. So I don't like leaving the space. If I get there at you know eight in the morning, I'd like to stay there till midnight or whatever the hours are. And if there's a sandwich shop across the road, perfect. We'll do that. I, I will I, have my. I bring my own kettle, my mm -hmm. own. Tea. Actually, a lot of times, my, the people I've worked with before, it's a joke. They just bring me bags of tea, um, you know, boxes of tea bags, because uh, they, you know, just to be funny. Because um, <laughs> I'll just drink tea the whole, uh, the whole time. Um, not because I'm British, it's just because I like tea. And well, so... Um, well, it, it, it helps that you're British. It makes it perfect. It, 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 make, it, makes, it makes it perfect, but it doesn't come from that. It's really funny because I never used to drink tea. It's just like I'm doing it now. Maybe I yearn to be more British. <laughs> I suspect that one of the reasons why you like to stay, there you go, like to stay in the theater and not leave for breaks is part of it is probably there's a, you don't want to break the rhythm of what you're doing either. I know uh, that one. Yeah. Yes. I, yeah, yeah. I like to stay in that rhythm when I'm in the theater that way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. I've, re I've not really analyzed that. I just feel more comfortable. Because when you go out and take the break, then you come back, you almost have to start your, your clock again. You almost have to start revving back into what you were doing. You know, I think you've put your, the, you know, I think you've nailed it on that. Yes. Well, sometimes, I, I sometimes, I, sometimes I get lucky. What, yeah. what would you say is the most fulfilling thing for you about sound design? Seeing the audience light up when the performance you know the overall performance is is happening just seeing that it was an evening well spent it was fantastic feeling that they had for five ten minutes or maybe an hour and a half or maybe the whole time you know two and a half hours i think i think that and what's really interesting is, you know, on opening nights, I love on opening nights, I actually like going into the theater. You know, usually after opening nights, people are, you know, going to the opening night party, et cetera. And so everyone leaves, but they're still in the theater, but there's no one in the auditorium. Right. So sitting in the auditorium after an opening night 
you feel the walls, you still feel the atmosphere. It's all captured inside that room. And that, that is a very personal uh, thing that I have and that I feel. And sometimes you might have the, you know, the, the guys, you know, the crew coming around saying, oh, we're, we're having a, a drink after the show. Where are you? And, you know, and it's, um, and I'm usually in the auditorium just sitting because no one else is there. And you just feel in the, the, what was captivated in those, you know, couple of hours um, from an opening night. And now if the opening night sucked, that's the last place I'm going to be. I'm going to be in the bar before <laughs> before the audience have left the theater. I, I, so. I, you can absolutely feel the energy and the vibes in a room after people yeah. have left it. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think anyone can feel it if they just take the time and go and sit in there and, uh, and, and have, so, they're able to have that experience. It's a very unique thing to be able to do. At that moment, you're sort of drinking in the fruits of your labor, is what you're doing. Um, I am. I, you, you've I seen it. I, I don't think it's about me. It's not about me. It's just. No, no. I, but you're appreciating what you have done, and it's no, the totality no, it's of not, it. It's not what I've done. It's not with reference to the sound or anything like this. It's just feeling the fact, let's say, that you're in a theater with 1,200 people have sat in and they've enjoyed. It's just feeling there. Their um, uh, what is it? It's it's not ectoplasm. It's feeling their their. Uh, They're the, not feeling their ectoplasm. Their no, energy. Jonathan. It's their the energy has been recorded in the walls, and now it's playing back. Yeah, well, that's right. And there, there's a theme in there because you're you have playback in some of your work, and it's also live. You've, that dog bark again, isn't it? It's back to the dog bark. <laughs> <laughs> well, believe it or not, we have been chatting for almost an hour and 15 minutes. We're going to wrap this thing up a little bit. In all of your many experiences around the world, can you share with us a story that's um, either strange, weird, quirky, offbeat, or just plain funny? Um, uh, no. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the uh, being with doing sound one was always uh, these days having to use uh, body mics or radio mics or transmitters. And if I think of situations of that, there are many, many stories. There's, to answer your question, there is many stories. I, I think one, I, it's funny because I've been watching uh, the Netflix, uh, The Crown, and uh, Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, and everything else. And it reminded me. <laughs> Uh, of a time when we were doing a, a gala and I was the mixer and he, to put a, a, a transmitter on him, to put a body mic on him was very, um, you have to go through security and everything else. That was not me. That was someone backstage who did that, got in there. And you have, there's someone who's watching them and you're putting the mic on the person, uh, in this case, uh, Prince Philip and, and setting it up. And I am in the mixer and the, the show is, going on and he was going to speak at the end of the show and the show was finishing up so i'm listening uh on the console directly to his transmitter making sure that it's on and so all good and everything else and so that's good so i finish mixing and then it's getting very close to the end and i know he's going to come out and speak so i'm listening and he's on the side of the stage i can hear he's on the side of the stage and uh and then I finished mixing and now he's just about to come on and I have a quick listen again and it stopped working. Oh God. 
Yeah, so he, he goes out and, and nobody can hear him and everything else, and nobody can get to him because you can't suddenly run up to the, the sure. Prince Philip and everything else. And then it reminded me of this, uh, this other time where it's kind of a sound uh, unspoken code where you listen, you're listening to the people who are wearing transmitters before they come on stage in order to make sure their mics are working so that the performance can go on. And uh, I, I remember when I was mixing, doing a pre-show check, and I was listening to going through the cast, and I got to a particular cast member, and I thought, oh, that's interesting, oh. And then the next day, um, same kind of thing happened. This is just before the show starts, and uh, it's like, okay, um, I think he's kind of doing hanky-panky. You know, it's like something's going on there. And uh, a few by, shows... By, by, by himself. Well, well, a few shows goes by, and then I'm hearing him talk to the other person. <laughs> the other person responds, and it's my wife. Oh. So, uh, and, and I would say a previous wife, um, I'll have to add, she was in the, she was in the show. And so uh, that was a very interesting situation then to, to having gone through that and witnessed it for a period of time and then, you know, over a period of days um, and then having to identify the situation. Not that I was listening in because I don't want to listen in because you, that's really boring and, and, <laughs> and truly and you got all the other cast members to listen to so you, you have a job to do you know the sound man's code or sound person's code sorry um and yeah and then to discover that and then have to mix a show was really uh, a very oddball situation oh i would call it disconcerting <laughs> yes. so there we go it, uh, yeah, yeah it, <laughs> oddball is a very pleasant way to say it <laughs> <laughs> Goodness. Yes, uh, so that was that was kind of a very unique situation. There. Yeah, I, <laughs> many things. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great scene from a movie, actually. Uh, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe someone can use that. Someone can use it. All right. Mm -hmm. uh, last last question, Jonathan. Um, do you have a solid piece of advice or a tip for someone who's trying to either break into the business of what you do, sound design in the theater, or maybe they're in a little bit and trying to break out and get to that next level? Um, yes, yes I do, uh, I, I think. First of all, be nice. Be nice to everyone. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the theater from, because you as the sound person is going to come across everyone, the house managers, the ushers, the, the house cleaners, the, the cast, the music, you come in touch with everyone be nice and always stay positive. You always have to stay positive. It's, um, it's, a, it's an old maxim that you, you know, the old saying is be nice to everyone on the way up because you're going to see them again on the way back down. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, if you're not nice to them, you're not going up that much. That's you know? true. So, um, and uh, uh, you have to be on time, be early, be on time. Do not be late. You can't turn up somewhere late. You can't turn up for a meeting, a rehearsal, an interview, uh, um, anything. You, you have to be on time. Even if you have to go and sit outside and 
you know, drink a cup of tea from the, <laughs> you know, the tea again. But it, just be early, be there. Uh, and then when you get into the, the rehearsal room, the theater, you need to read the room. You need to understand what is going on and be able to, you know what I'm saying, when you read the room, you sure, understand. You have, you have to know whether somebody's having a very bad day or a very good day or whether there's a, there's a turmoil of some kind. You need to know. Yeah, and it's, and it's just all of these little pockets of things, be able to read it and understand it and, and make sure there are no red flags that are coming your way or the way of your team or there's a, any red flags that are affecting anyone. You just really need to be understand that. And, and, and then, of course, the other, other thing is you, you might be brilliant or whatever, but if you don't take the reality of that schedule the the thing that we've spoke about mm -hmm. if you don't put that into the right focus and everything else doesn't matter how good you are um you'll get screwed well yeah it'll bite you on the butt at some point because you're screwing somebody else up is what you're doing right and there is way and by dealing with that straight away um in a nice way and in a timely way and reading the room way <laughs> all of those things come into play all the time uh being able to uh, being able to do the best that you can do um, uh, under the, the terms and conditions that you've said yes to. Sure. And that's, uh, that's something else. If you've said yes to something, make sure you do it. Belong. Don't be looking for any excuses. You've said yes, do it until it's finished. Well, th th these are very valuable pieces of advice for anyone, really, in pretty much any industry, but in particular in theater, in the, in the entertainment arts. Um, it's about, what's interesting that you focused on is it's all about relationships with other people. Yeah. And that's what counts is how you treat others and how they treat you because that then turns into other work. It turns into your reputation. It turns into all those things. And it turns into being satisfied that you have done the best that you can do because you're allowed to do it. Right, because exactly. You, you, there, was no, there was no conflict or minimum conflict. You know, there's always things that happen. It's, it's a family. You're, 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 you're creating a family. The production becomes a family. And there are gonna, there's going to be issues in that family. But as a family, you stick together and you work through it and you sort it out. And uh, everyone at the end has uh, a joyous... Um, time once they can share uh, their family photos in, you know, with, with people who want to watch. Have you ever worked on a single production in your entire career that was absolutely conflict-free with nobody being upset about anything? Yeah, I, I, I yes. You know, I, I think actually Jackie Little Pill comes into that. Jagged Little Pill. Yeah, I'm just going to I'm just going through the list of everyone. Everything went smooth as glass then. There was no no issues. Uh, no uh, well, nothing goes as smooth as glass. That's a different question. Well, okay. Um, you know, but 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 as far as the unity and everyone knowing what they were doing, how they were doing it and being able to discuss and have a conversation with anyone and everyone about it. And the cast, the musicians, the creative team, the theater, the uh, everybody loved to be in there and loved to see this energy that everybody created. And we all created that together. As I said, it's like a sweater. You it, know? So it, it sounds to me like a room full of actual professionals. That's what it sounds like. I, I've 
singled that one out because it's the 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 last the latest one that I can easily you know go through my head and see. There's there's been many others, but interestingly enough, is usually the successful ones are those. The ones that are successful are the ones where people have really united together and they're doing one production, not a production with multiple layers. Mm -hmm. I, I think this is very, very valuable advice. Jonathan Deans, this has just been a fantastic show. I really enjoyed hearing about how you approach sound design because I think very few people ever talk about it or hear about it other than other sound, sound designers. So. Yeah. I really am grateful for you coming on and being a part of Storybeat today. It's been a total pleasure and thank you so much, Steve. And so we've come to the end of today's Storybeat. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great Storybeat episodes to you. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.